Hi, my name is Dinesh Sabu. I'm the director of the new documentary, Unbroken Glass, and you are listening to Heart Fire Film. Before we get into our conversation with Dinesh, I'm going to let you listen to a little piece from the film that explains the title. Always she used this one sentence a lot. I wanted to be on my own. She was seeking her independence. Since childhood it seems, and even after marriage. You know, she was a free soul. You didn't know her normal self. Mm. So when we see a glass broken, we always think, oh, it's a broken glass, you know? But when you see a beautiful glass or anything, you know exactly how that person was before and what is missing. And it's more hurtful. Dinesh, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we met at KTQ 50th anniversary celebration in Chicago. Welcome to Heart Fire Film. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us the synopsis of the film first. My uh, parents both passed away when I was pretty young. I was six years old when I lost my uh, mother and father. And so I, I grew up and I didn't really know who they were. I had a, like a thumbnail sketch of their lives. And so the film started out as an excuse to go on this journey and piece together this, their story, like you mentioned. Um, the camera was this great way to sit my siblings and my extended family down and really figure out, ask these very difficult questions and figure out who my parents were. So at the beginning of your film, you are at a river. Tell us a little bit about the significance of that. Yes, so we open the film and I'm on a train to Varanasi, which is actually one of the oldest cities in the world. It's one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. It's in um, northeast India, on the banks of the Ganges River, which is an incredibly holy place in, in Hinduism. And as my brother explains, he deposited the ashes of my mother in the river. And actually somebody else had deposited my father's ashes there. So in addition to just being a, you know, very holy pilgrimage as a, as somebody born Hindu, it was just incredibly meaningful. This is the closest I would get to, visiting any kind of grave, visiting any kind of um, cemetery with that, that held their remains. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I didn't make it out there until, you know, the age of 24, uh, which is that scene that you see. And, um, you know, it kind, of, it kind of kicks off the journey that I'm about to go on in terms of really coming to term with their, terms with their death and um, understanding, you know, who they were and, and, and who I was, who I am, I should say. So the film you started in 2009, is that when it actually started? Yeah, that, that opening scene is actually um, January 1st, 2009, which happened to be my 24th birthday. So, um, you know, I, I had been shooting it. You know, it, it, the, the final scene takes place in 2014. I shot it on and off throughout five years. You know, the, the nature of the footage was it wasn't really easy for me to look at right away. I would shoot a bunch of interviews. And I would kind of hide them under my desk. I would kind of pretend like, oh, well, you know, I'll look at that whenever I have time. And then months would go by and I would, I would, 
I would see the, the tapes underneath my desk. This was back when people still shot on tape. <laughs> um, so ultimately, though, I started gathering enough where I could start putting it together. And um, that's when I you know, brought in an editor and, and really started working in earnest on it. Usually in documentary film, you're going to look at the end of the day uh, what you've shot and see what maybe you, you still need to shoot the next day. So that's interesting. Emotionally, you just had to set it aside. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think I, you know, the camera became this great mediating tool. It was a way for me to look at and confront things that I just don't think I could have looked at without some kind of, you know, looked at directly, that is. So, yeah, I would I would shoot these interviews with my siblings or my extended family and really get into some, you know, pretty, pretty messy stuff, as you see in the film. And, yeah, it was just too difficult for me to deal with it immediately. Like you said, you know, usually at the end of the day or when you come back from whatever shoot, you kind of, you know, scrub through all the footage and kind of think about what's missing. That My, my process was a little different. I mean, it was so raw that I, I think what what was happening is I would it would take me a few weeks just to process the – emotional impact of these interviews and only then could i you know have muster the courage to look at the actual footage um so it proceeded kind of on and off like that the other big thing was you know as you probably know in doc you know it's just it, you know fundraising is so difficult so we would have to take these long hiatuses to to raise more funds to um just continue to work a big part of why i made the film was, I mean, obviously to go on this journey, but also to start these conversations around mental illness, around stigma, and, and really just be honest with people about, you know, this is, this is the experience I lived with. This is what mental illness looks like. And the really miraculous thing, you know, I've been screening this, um, you know, since about October or so. Just I've been kind of on this ad hoc tour at festivals and colleges and community organizations and there's never a screening that happens where somebody doesn't stand up and say either in the q a or come up to me afterwards and they say you know this this is a lot like my family or oh hey i had this uncle who i didn't really know about um and i think these things are a lot more prevalent than we realize and it's it's you know again one of the reasons i made the film was to really have these conversations and to really you know, bring some of these things out into the light. Uh, because I think the silence, you know, it's a survival mechanism. I think for us, for my siblings and I, it was a survival mechanism. But it can also be a really, you know, almost dangerous thing. It can also be this really pernicious, damaging thing. Because without, without the knowledge of, hey, this is in my family, or, you know, the, you're just understanding, you know, who you are, or where you came from, I think that can be a really uh, damaging thing. You know, you can, you can make decisions about your, yourself, about your mental health that, that might not be the best decision. Um, yeah. Well, I think it transcends to a degree as well, race and um, social status. I think everybody, you know, schizophrenia is, is depicted in the cinema, you know, or television is usually someone that's committing a crime or committing murder or something like that. When it's or very, some kind of genius, much, right? Yeah, it's it's um it, it has that stigma, whereas you know the person a lot of times will just go into their room and you know the, my relative would just just go in there they he blackened all the windows and they just go off into their own world because they can't handle it. So right, um, right. You know, 
so it's quite different than than sometimes the way it's depicted. Well, the majority of the way it's depicted in in cinema and sometimes in television. So I'm glad you made this, and glad that you're putting this out there for people to have start conversations about this. Now through this journey, so this was a five year journey that you took from 2009 seven, to 2014. Yeah, shooting it took about five years, and then it took us a couple of years after that to finish editing it. Um, and again, a lot of that was, you know, at that point we had got about a hundred hours of footage, maybe a little bit more. So a lot of that was just waiting through the footage. And then also it was the, you know, the, the rigmarole of raising the funds to, to work with another. So I think it took us another couple of years, um, probably only 12 months of those were we actually spending in the edit room, but the other, the other 12 was, was the, the hiatuses for funding. How many different edits did you have? Did you go through before your final? Oh wow! As it's, far as you know, that was a real. It in. <laughs> yeah, it was a real odyssey. It was a real odyssey, and I should say that I had the benefit of working with a very, very close friend, Matt Lauterbach, who he's he's worked on a, a number of Cartoon Wind films as well. We were interns at the same time together back in 2008, and we got to. Uh, collaborating and to being friends back then and it was it's the kind of material where you know I don't think I could have just you know hired any editor or even a very experienced uh, verite editor I needed somebody I could trust just deeply and implicitly and and I was lucky in that I found that person in in Matt Lauterbach as far as the number of of cuts we did I mean it's they kind of all blend together you know a big part of the early part of the process was, you know, putting the footage together in a chronological way that in a way that Matt could understand, because uh, so much of the story I had, I had already internalized and already knew. So there were, there's a lot of footage where, you know, my siblings or my extended family, they're referencing, you know, people or events that I already know. And that we just kind of continue talking about, um, and it, that was really confusing for Matt. So part of the editing process was just putting together a, a chronological sequence. I think it was about nine hours um, of just all the events in the film from beginning to end. And I, I kind of filled him in on all the gaps in that. From there, it, we kind of polished it down to a, a string out or an assembly, I should say, you know, a couple of hours. I think it was about three hours. And then from there, I think we probably went through you know, 30 cuts. It depends. It really depends on when, when one cut, when you want to number it, right. When one cut ends and the other begins, there was a lot of experimentation and um, we had three really big rough cut screenings where we had, you know, we, we invited other filmmakers uh, to, to, you know, to watch the film and to really give us feedback. We only did three of those. I know some filmmakers like to do, you know, closer to a dozen, but we had a lot of you know interstitial cuts in between those, and then we would we would really try to polish it up before sending it to an audience like that. Was that part of the KTQ group that comes in and looks at films, or was that separate? It, yeah, it was. It's very similar. Um, it wasn't quite so. They, there's KTQ Labs, which is the uh, like the, the the program where uh, you know anyone can come off this, come in and watch uh, you know screen a rough cut. So it was you know, members of the Cartoon Wing community, members of the Chicago filmmaking community, you know, sometimes we did screenings with non-filmmakers. Um, it was important for us at every screening to have at least one or two folks who didn't know who I was. You know, it being a personal doc, I think if 
you know, people, people knowing who I was, that would really, you know, color the way they experienced the film. So it, um, yeah, but it was very similar to that really rigorous uh, KTQ Labs process. It might have even been more rigorous because, you know, as I found out, you know, Gordon, Gordon's not going to just let anything, you know, go out there with his name on it. Um, so he, you know, he really held us to very, very high standards, um, which was, which was ultimately good, but you know, it was, it was tough at times. Uh, the first job I had at Cartoon was, was Gordon was being Gordon's assistant, which is, you know, probably a chapter of our relationship that we would both like to just forget if we could. But um, in, in, in honesty, it was a great way to just kind of learn osmotically from, you know, one of the doc masters, just kind of seeing, seeing how he, you know, navigated. He was, he, he was working on a handful of projects at the time. And I should say, Cartoon One was a really different organization back then. It was um, significantly smaller, and it was the kind of place where if you were on staff, you kind of got to do a little bit of everything. So I was, you know, I was his assistant. I was doing a lot of admin work, but I was also doing a lot of sound recording, a lot of post-production, a lot of shooting. And that's when I really kind of honed my, my cinematography chops is, um, you know, he had, you know, he had this has this lifetime of experience shooting documentaries and he would, you know, he would always come back. He would always have something to say about the footage I brought back, um, which was good. It was a great learning process, but it was also really tough, you know, just to be held to those really high standards. I'm curious about though, is, was this primarily a single shooter? It was always just one camera. And the, the first, I would say half of the film or so, you know, I'm the camera person. Um, so it had, and you know, I had watched, Sherman's March are kind of around that age and this idea of like almost a second person aesthetic, you know, where I'm, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. talking to people behind the camera and, and really, you know, interacting. I thought I, I really loved just intimate second person kind of aesthetic. And that was really important. You know, uh, it didn't have to look good, but it needed to be intimate. And so having a crew in the room with my, you know, when I'm interviewing my brothers and sisters, was just it, it wasn't something I was ready to do but then as it progressed and as I became more of a character in the film um you know I, I have a greater presence in front of the camera and that's when you know it starts looking more like a traditional kind of verite documentary but even then that was just one camera person that was Ian Kibbe who um you might uh, he he produced um Raising Bertie another really just fantastic Carson film but he's a, you know, a, a good friend and was able to, you know, I was able to trust him with, with shooting it and just kind of focus on, on going on the journey. You mentioned uh, Sherman's March really influenced you. I remember watching that film in the, the theater when it first came out, actually. Movie what other influences yeah. do you have? Um, there's a film that came out, I think, around 2003, 2004, maybe later, called My Architect, A Son's Journey which was really quite interesting. It was, it, it spoke to what I was hoping to do with the film. You know, this is a doc about, you know, Louis Kahn, his son, Louis Kahn, the architect, um, had, had a son who never really knew who he was. And he goes on this journey and looks at all these buildings and tries to piece together this, this portrait of, um, of, of his father. Um, and I remember looking at that and then 51 Birch street, Doug Block's film, um, Again, it, it was just this intensely personal story about a family. The cool thing about Doug Block is that it, he also uses that second-person Sherman's March kind of aesthetic, and um, you know, he's a, his voice is really, really huge in the film. Um, 
So I think those were those were some really key films in terms of coming up with Unbroken Glass. I think there there, there were a couple of cartoon win films as well that really stuck with me. There was um, a film that I worked on a little bit as an intern called Prisoner Prisoner of Her Past, which was um, you know the the film so Gordon um, directed it, but he worked with this guy Howard Reich, who is a journalist, and Howard's mother. Um, suffered is suffering from uh, late onset PTSD. Um, she survived the Holocaust, and at the beginning of the film, she's basically you know reliving her experience. And you know Howard goes on this journey to figure out exactly what happened to her, and and really try to look closely at, at what what uh, what's going on. Um, so that was a that was a huge film in terms of you know thinking about my own process, thinking about Unbroken Glass as well. In this journey of making Unbroken Glass, what did you learn as an artist? Because documentary film is an art from the yeah, beginning to yeah. the end. How did you, um, how did that change you as an artist? Yeah, that's a, that's a really fantastic question. And it's probably one that I won't fully be able to answer until, you know, I'm, I'm a few months or years out of the process. You know, I think I'm in the middle of it right now in terms of sh- uh, showing it to, 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 to audiences and, and getting feedback and stuff. And that's, that's been a really incredible kind of understanding that part of the process. But if I could just speculate a little bit, I think one thing I wasn't prepared for when I started the film, but really had to do in order to make a, an honest film is really subject myself to a, uh, you know, a high level of scrutiny. Um, you know, the, the journey, the emotional journey I go on in the film in terms of talking about forgiveness, talking about grief, talking about anger. You know, I don't think if, if you asked me when I was 24, if that's what the film was going to be, I probably would have I probably would have disagreed with it. I probably would have not made it if I knew that I was going to have to confront those things. But I think, you know, realizing that there are these as an artist, you take on. A, you know, a lot of different responsibilities. And one of the, one of those responsibilities is to your subject matter. And you really, part of that is just committing completely um, emotionally, intellectually, artistically to, you know, understanding and really crafting that, that subject and that story and really not being afraid to change. I think the, you know, the interesting thing about this personal doc, but I really suspect this is the case for, for any film is that, uh, you know, the films change the filmmaker as much as they change the subjects. Um, and, and I think I'm kind of wrapping my head around that part of the process and that kind of trajectory of the, of the artist's life. I, it's kind of unfair, I think, sometimes when I ask that question, but I really, I think it's an important question because sometimes we forget that this is an art and you are an artist. You're absolutely right. It is an art. And I think... It's important, I think, at least for me as a kind of a you know, second time filmmaker or emerging filmmaker, whatever you want to call it, you know, to, you know, to not get complacent. I think we need to constantly be challenging ourselves with our subject matter, with our process, with our collaborators. And I think some of the, I mean, some of the, the best filmmakers are the ones that do that, where they're, they're, they, you know, it never gets easy. You know, every film, every film is as difficult as the last. It's just you have this experience of having made one to made a few maybe to re- rely upon. But I think it's, it's such a good, I think it's a really important for us as 
filmmakers as a field to have this kind of continual dialogue about, you know, our artistic process and, and what that's like. Where are you headed as, as a filmmaker now, Dinesh? So that's a good question. You know, I, for the longest time, I thought I was supposed to have another feature in development. Um, you know, there's this kind of unspoken rule, I think, in our industry that, oh, when, the, when, you, when one features at festivals, you should be, that's when you should be pitching and really working on the other feature. You know, I, I was really, um, you know, toiling with that because, you know, Unbroken Glass was such an intense experience that it was it was really hard to just kind of get back on the horse, so to speak, and, you know, start making another feature. And I remember even talking to Gordon about it, and he was like, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of a silly, you know, quote unquote rule um, there, you know, you can, you know, you can, you're entitled to take a break. This was, this was a really intense process. So I'm not directing a feature right now. There are a couple of short films I'm trying to get off the ground, some short docs, and I am co-producing a feature. So I guess I'm, you know, it's not like I'm completely out of the, the feature doc world. I'm co-producing and shooting a film. Um, we're calling, we call it How to Build a School in Haiti. Um, it's an independent project. Uh, the director is a guy named Jack C. Newell, who's, who's based here in Chicago. And that film, you know, we've been shooting it since uh, 2011. Um, we've been following this really scrappy, very small NGO that has, uh, after the 2010 earthquake, they decided that they wanted to build a school in this very remote part of Haiti. And... Um, you know, we had we had access to them and the story from the, from almost the beginning, and you know, the the film is, you know, the story of them trying to build a school, but it's also a way to talk about just how challenging development is, both from a just a logistical perspective, but also just how, you know, maybe building a school isn't always the right thing to do. You know, maybe there are, you know, other other um, you know more community based ways of implementing aid. So it's 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 a it's a microcosm for some of these larger questions in development. Um, so that's kind of, you know, we're, we're working with an editor right now and we're hoping to, you know, we've got to raise some more money to keep going, but hopefully that'll be out in the next couple of years. Since you've done these other films and you went to Haiti, what is your method of getting people to trust you? Yeah. I mean, I think that screening, screening the film with the subject is a really important part of the process. Um, and it usually happens later on or, you know, after you've gotten a little bit of, of footage. But before then, because the Haiti doc, we're not quite at the place where we can screen with subjects. But even before then, I think it's really important to just, before you're a filmmaker, you, you know, really just trying to be an authentic human being, just trying to be present, trying to listen, really listening and responding and, and trying to understand. I think that goes a really long way. So, you know, oftentimes filmmakers, I'll be, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get hired for like a freelance job and the filmmaker, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they, they kind of have this front, you know, oh, I'm, I work for HBO or I work for so-and-so. And it's really hard to, to get past that. And I think the big difference between that kind of style and cartoon is, you know, everyone's there, everyone, everyone I know there, they're really just ultimately very down to earth very honest people, very humble people. And I think that is a, that is kind of the beginning of just connecting with, with folks. Um, that being said, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult having, you know, a camera crew around. It's difficult having people follow you around. 
So, you know, one thing I was shooting on a film called End of Love, which is about um, it's about uh, sex offenders. Actually, it's looking at uh, people who got convicted with, you know, possessing child pornography. You know, these you know, people aren't contact offenders, but they are people who are on sex offender registries. Um, usually they are, you know, the, the folks we were talking to, they made this mistake when they were really young. Some of them were even minors at the time. But, um, you know, one one thing was, you know, I would, I, I would, you know, shoot and try to connect with folks. And then if it, if it didn't work out, you know, one thing that always works is, just, you know, sharing your own story. Um, and I think having this background that I do, you know, having lived through some experiences, it's a way to connect really deeply and honestly with, with other folks who have, you know, like, like we were talking earlier, there's a lot of universality in this story. And I think that sharing those kind of stories is, is kind of the, one of the really cool things about filmmaking, but also just storytelling in general. And it's a great way to develop that kind of trust and rapport. Where can people see Unlocking Glass? Yeah, so we've had a really great run at uh, several film festivals, and I'm I'm really happy. I think this is the first press I'm I'm able to announce this. We just made arrangements with Tug Films for cinema on demand distribution. So that's a great way to bring the film to communities. Um, really, really awesome uh, platform they have. It's just Tug.com. T-U-G-G.com. Um, beyond that, we are going to be broadcast on America Reframed, which is on the World Channel, uh, and that will likely happen in uh, in the middle of May. So stay tuned for um, we'll be announcing you know specific dates, et cetera, around that. Where do you want to put yes. them on social media? Absolutely. So we're on Facebook, uh, facebook.com backslash Unbroken Glass Film, um, and then we're also on Twitter, just at Unbroken Glass. And we also have a pretty good newsletter. We don't send it out too often, so we're not going to spam people or anything. It's, you know, once every month, you know, maybe a little bit more frequently. But you can sign up for that at uh, www.unbrokenglassfilm.com. And, yeah, thanks again, Richard. It was great to chat with you. Thank you, Dinesh. Thank you for listening to Heartfire Film. You can also follow along with us on Twitter, YouTube, and SoundCloud.